You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. I'm going to hit you with some sweet, sweet archaeology, guys. Love me. Love my mustache, babe. Moustaches. Moustaches. It had to be Gaul. It couldn't be anywhere else. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Last week, we talked about Julius Caesar, who had just finished his first consulship, become governor of Transalpine Gaul, and set himself on a collision course toward an ancient epic culture, the Gauls. This collision was to the Gallic people like the Chicxulub meteor that killed the dinosaurs, a terrible, world-rending event whose effects can still be felt today. That happened in 58 BC. But before telling you about the Gallic Wars, I wanted to talk about the people on the receiving end of that invasion who they were and what life was like in free Gaul before the Gallic Wars, and that is what this episode is about. The Romans had faced the Gauls before, in an earlier event that left its own traumatic mark, this time on the Roman psyche, and it was the shockwave from this event hundreds of years later that sent Caesar catapulting toward Gaul like a flaming meteor. In 390 BC, about 332 years before Caesar invaded Gaul, a group of Gauls came over the Alps and attacked the city of Rome. This was a tribe called the Senones, led by a man named Brennus. And Brennus, like Alaric of the Visigoths, almost 800 years later, was very, very quotable. When Roman envoys challenged his right to be in the area, he said, quote, that they carried their right in their weapons and that everything belonged to the brave. I mean... I love that quote. I do too. Brennus and his warriors fought the Romans at the Battle of Aelia, and the very sight of them shocked the Romans to their core. Instead of an orderly phalanx, they found themselves confronting a howling mob of towering fair-haired men, over 30,000 of them. They had long, wild blonde hair and thick, full moustaches. Ooh, (laughs) moustaches. Moustaches. Yeah, that's that's how I say (laughs) moustaches. 
<laughs> Are we just going to do that the whole episode? Well, that's how I'm saying it. I have no control over how you say it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you even have any control over how you say it. So these men with their wild blonde hair and their thick full mustaches, they had oval shields and large bludgeoning swords. And many of this mob fought completely naked, except for golden torques gleaming about their necks. I mean... I mean, they do kind of sound like a mob of romance novel cover models. They do. You can sort of see them very Fabio-esque, like just ready to sweep you away into like an otherworld adventure. Oh my gosh, yeah. So this (sighs) is an army of Fabios with porn mustaches. This is Outlander gone very, very wrong. Love me. Love my mustache, babe. (laughs) Moustache. Sorry, my moustache. So back to these warrior men. (laughs) I'm just, I'm, we're never going to get through the second paragraph, guys. Just, I'm really sorry. We're calling it on Ancient History Fangirl. We made it to season three. That's <laughs> it. The rest of this, like, hour and a half episode is going to be us giggling about these this one paragraph. Aristotle, you win. You're right. We shouldn't say anything. We're females. <laughs> we should not have that responsibility. <laughs> so the ones who weren't fighting naked fought bare-chested in trousers, while some others wore tunics. The most high-ranking among them wore chainmail and elaborate helmets, decorated with animal horns and fearsome crests. These warriors seem to have been beamed down from another world, enormous, muscular, monstrously brave, and so confident in battle that many fought buck naked. Wow. We are shamelessly objectifying the Gauls. Sorry. <laughs> it's only a few a few minutes in, and here we go. Their hairstyles were foreign to the Romans. Their weapons were foreign, and what clothes they did wear when they were wearing clothes were also foreign to the Romans. The Romans, like the Greeks, were deeply unsettled by pants. And by pants, you mean trousers, not pants as in undergarments. I'm using the American version of pants, and Jen is using the British version. To Jen, pants are underwear. Pants are underwear. The Romans and the Greeks, well, at least the Romans had some kind of underwear. We've talked about the Greeks before. I think that we talked about the Greeks and how they just did not wear underwear and constantly flash people. Yeah, we did, and we can't talk about it anymore because I've got an underwear rule. So we're moving on now. Right. Jen has a weird underwear, I don't know what to call it, like a geisa? <laughs> you haven't told them about gases yet, so they're not going to understand what that means. It's a magical prohibition that you're not allowed to break, and Jen has one about underwear. No, it's more like if you're not wearing underwear, I'm not going to be able to have a conversation with you. But I don't need to know if you're not wearing underwear, so like, don't make it a thing. Anyway, the Gauls won that battle, plowing through the Roman troops on the bank of the river Alea and scattering them to the winds. Then they advanced on Rome itself. The people of Rome panicked, and those who could picked up and fled. Some, however, chose to stay and die with the city, especially city fathers. And I feel like you and I would also choose to stay in the cities so we could meet the army of Fabios. I mean, yeah, I would totally be waiting to like see the army of Fabios. I'm not sure if I'd be bold enough to be like on street level, but I'd probably be like on the roof with a margarita. (laughs) (laughs) And what happened next reads to me like something out of the ancient world Twilight Zone. Not like a romance novel, The Twilight Zone. We get this picture from Livy. Imagine a group of tall, torque-wearing Gauls, guys from tribal agrarian cultures who'd probably lived in small villages their whole lives, suddenly confronted with an enormous city, the largest they'd ever seen. It has formidable walls and a strong gate, but the gate has been left standing open. The Gauls enter the city. They're expecting a fight, but the city is eerily silent. Its streets are tangled and maze-like. The buildings are crammed close together, and most are left unlocked, doors hanging open, wealth there for the taking. And there's two girls on the roof just looking down, staring at you. 
It's just us with our margaritas. It's fine. You can hear the ice clinking. I don't know how we have ice, but we do. So back to these poor gulls. They're in the city and it's quiet. It's too quiet. It must be a trap. Yeah, I smell a trap. So they wander the city with swords drawn on a hair trigger, expecting to round the corner at any moment and find a fight to the death. But that's not what they find. And as they realize the city is empty, they start to wonder if there's not something more mysterious at work here. Maybe the city is haunted. Maybe the gods themselves have cursed it. Then, they come to an enormous square encircled by the town's finest villas, mansions of Rome's civic leaders, and there, seated on their porticos, are dozens of old men, long-bearded and decked out in their most elaborate finery. They say nothing. They do nothing. They're eerily silent and still as statues, each with a majestic, almost godlike demeanor. Livy describes them as, quote, superhumanly majestic. The Gauls all exchanged glances. Shit has just gotten really, really weird. These are the city fathers who've chosen to stay with their city and die with it. They've dressed in the outfits they once wore in religious processions and at important gatherings, and they're waiting silently for death. But the Gauls don't know that. They think maybe these men are gods or spirits. Livy makes much of their superstition here. For a moment, the Gauls don't know what to make of them or this weird situation in general or what to do. Then, one of the Gauls strolls up to a silent, statuesque city father and does probably what I would do, and yanks on the dude's beard. Oh, you would never do that. I mean, everything belongs to the brave, Jen. You would never be bold enough to, like, yank on their beard as if they're, like, a Santa Claus in July. That is someone who's just, like, zero fucks given. I mean... Have you never done this, Jen? <laughs> no, I was the kind of kid who, like, knew not to pull off Father Christmas's beard. You're not in a combat situation, though. Yeah, I mean, in a combat situation, I'm also not going to go for the beard. Like, if I'm going to go for anything to disable the person I'm against, it's definitely the groin or the eyes or the throat. If you throw a punch, then they can't, like, call out. That's my preference. Like, the beard feels a bit gratuitous. Wow, Jen, you are, she's dangerous. <laughs> You don't want to meet Jen in a dark alley at night. I mean, we've been over this already with the frenzying. Anyway, he yanks on the dude's beard and the city father hauls off and whacks the gull's head with his bejeweled staff because this guy just seriously overstepped. And that's when all hell breaks loose. The gulls butchered the city fathers where they stood and then went on to pillage and destroy, setting buildings on fire and stripping the city of its wealth. Eventually, the Romans had to bribe the gulls to go away. They agreed on a ransom of 1,000 pounds of gold. But when the time came to weigh it up, the Gauls used faulty counterweights that forced the Romans to pay even more. And this is according to the Romans. You're getting this from Livy, so grain of salt. Exactly. When the Romans complained, Brennus contemptuously tossed his own sword on top of the counterweight, saying, quote, woe to the vanquished. This event was so culturally traumatic that for centuries after, Roman children were terrorized by stories of six-foot-tall, hard-fighting, hard-drinking, vicious barbarian Gauls who, you know, they became an ancient world boogeyman. An adult Roman spent a lot of time eyeing the Alps suspiciously, just waiting for more of these violent people to come pouring over the peaks and attack again. Invasion of the Fabios. (laughs) (laughs) They might be like the rock. I mean, maybe they're just really misunderstood. I think so, too. And I think we're getting to that. So that's why Caesar targeted the Gauls. It wasn't just to pay off his student loan debt because Papa Crassus, much like Sally Mae, will track you down, Caesar. Because the Gauls were rich, but so were other people. It was also because of his deep-seated fear-based prejudice against the Gauls that was baked into the ancient Roman culture. 
Before invading Gaul, Caesar had made a lot of powerful political enemies in one very short, very eventful year as consul. The minute he put a toe back in Rome, those enemies were just waiting to see him prosecuted for serious abuses of power. Caesar stood to be stripped of everything he owned, his citizenship and position, and have all the laws he'd ever enacted erased from history, both as consul and in other positions. This is a total bit of irony because Caesar had made his career on being a prosecutor who did the exact same thing to other people who ran for office. And this was how Caesar made his name. He was the guy who was getting rid of corruption. He was basically prosecuting governors who plundered their own provinces for personal gain and also to pay off their creditors. And the system was kind of set up to make it really hard not to do that because of the way that they had to keep running these campaigns and keep funding public works and games and spending money like water and like keep getting into debt and into debt and into debt. And the consequences if your debtor is caught up to you. Exactly. And Caesar now found himself realizing that it's a vicious circle and he's also in the same position. And now everything that he had worked for was going to come falling down around his ears unless he got out of Rome, got some money and got some power behind him. Did it in a way where the optics look good to the Romans back home. Exactly. And what better way than to take on the Romans' big bad boogeyman who'd been haunting their closet since they were small children. Exactly. If Caesar could take the battle to the Gauls, Rome's seminal boogeyman and defeat them where they lived, his reputation in Rome would rocket into the stratosphere. The mob would be behind him, his political enemies would have to back down, and he'd be on an even footing with Crassus and Pompey, not the junior partner. Not to mention, he'd have his own army, battle-tested and loyal only to him. Enriching himself by pillaging Gallic communities to pay off his debts was just a side benefit. It had to be Gaul. It couldn't be anywhere else. Who were the Gauls exactly? I'm so glad you asked that question because that is the question that I've been carrying around in my head for a long time. In our last episode, we left off telling Caesar's story just before he invaded Gaul. And in telling the next part of that story, the Gallic Wars, I encountered a problem. The only account of Caesar's time in Gaul is written by Caesar himself. It's called the Commentaries. The Commentaries are an incredibly important historical document. If you took Latin class, you may have translated it. And if you did, you probably remember its iconic opening line, Gaul is a whole divided into three parts. That's how Caesar divided Gaul. No word on how the Gauls would have divided themselves. This document gives us countless details about how the military worked, the cultures and people of Gaul, and the personalities and motivations of those who fought both for and against Caesar. Details you can't get anywhere else. Millions of people were involved in Caesar's Gallic Wars, but Caesar's is the only eyewitness account of what happened that's come down to us. Yeah, but that's also propaganda. Caesar knew going into Gaul that as soon as he was done, he'd be in big trouble back home. I mean, see what we said about the Bank of Crassus. To protect himself, he needed the support of the public. The commentaries were written to explain what he was doing in Gaul, to aggrandize himself, and to stoke public support for his invasion. They were to be read aloud in public squares, allowing Caesar to sidestep the Senate and communicate directly with the people. They weren't written to tell the unvarnished truth. They were written to save Caesar's ass. While we have to rely on Caesar's account to talk about the Gallic Wars themselves, we're aware of the problem of telling the story from only the point of view of the victor. But the Gauls didn't write their own account of the Gallic Wars. They relied on oral tradition not written records, to tell their own stories. The problem with that is, when the people die, their stories die with them, leaving only their conquerors to tell us who they were. 
We don't have much in terms of written accounts from the Gauls in their own words, but we do have more indirect evidence, archaeology, and ancient myths written down in later times. In the next two episodes, we're going to do our best to sidestep Caesar the way Caesar sidestepped the Senate. Sick burn! I know! We're pulling a Caesar on Caesar. (laughs) (laughs) And let the Gauls speak to us themselves as directly as they can through mythology and the bones and artifacts they left us. We're also going to hear from other Mediterranean writers who are not Caesar, who encountered the Gauls at other points in ancient history, not as conquerors, but chroniclers. And we're also going to dig into a few ancient myths that were written down long after the Gauls and in places outside of Gallic territory, but that nonetheless may be able to shed some light on their culture. So strap in, because we're going to tell you about about the Gauls. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The Gauls were a Celtic people who once lived in what's now France. Gauls were the Roman term for them. As for what they called themselves, the names of individual tribes come down to us through time. The Belgae, the Aquitani, the Allobroges, the Arverni. But even these come mostly through Greek and Roman writers. The word Celtic is an ancient term whose meaning has grown, changed, and deepened over the centuries. And it is particularly meaningful today to those with Irish, Scottish, and pre-Roman British heritage. But that word, Celtic, actually comes from an ancient Greek word, Keltoi. It was originally used by a Greek geographer in 517 BC to refer to a tribe of Gallic people living near what's now Marseille in France. Later, it was expanded to refer to an entire culture spread out over an enormous territory, stretching from what's now Ireland and the UK all the way across Western Europe, Eastern Europe, parts of Northern Europe, and into Asia Minor. The terms Celts and Gauls were sometimes used interchangeably in ancient writings, but they actually didn't mean the same thing. Celtic in ancient times generally meant the people from this culture who lived throughout that entire territory, while the word Gallic meant Celtic people who lived in what's now France. So if you were Gallic, you were Celtic. But if you were Celtic, you weren't necessarily Gallic. You could be from what's now the UK, for example. The Gauls, and more broadly, the Celts in general, weren't a unified political group. They were loosely connected groups of tribes spread out over vast geographical territories, sometimes fighting each other and sometimes allied, who shared similar traditions and cultural signifiers. So these were not people calling themselves by the same name. This is just what outsiders called them. So what were these cultural signifiers? We're going to hit you with some quotes from Posidonius the Stoic, who traveled in free Gaul before the Gallic Wars. He was a Greek. Quote, they eat their meat in a cleanly mouth enough, but like lions, taking up whole joints in both their hands and gnawing them. (laughs) The liquor which is drunk is, among the rich, wine brought from Italy, and this is drunk unmixed or sometimes a little water is mixed with it. They all drink it out of the same cup. 
They have a description of people called bards who make the music, and these are poets who recite their praises with songs. So, Jen, how about you hit us with some archaeology? <laughs> sorry. Just, there needs to be a transition here. <laughs> I'm just going to use that as the transition. Why can't I? I'm just going to do it. I thought you'd never ask for the archaeology, Jenny. Here we go. The man was over six foot tall, a giant among Romans, but not that unusual among his own people. He'd been about 40 years old when he died. In 530 BC, 140 years before the first sack of Rome, he'd been buried under a towering grave mound, and with him was everything he needed to throw the kind of feast you read about in the epic sagas. The Hochdorf chieftain clearly loved to party, man after my own heart. He was buried with a huge cauldron that could contain 500 liters of liquid, at the time of burial, it had been full of mead. And I have one time with Jenny Williamson drunk a ridiculous quantity of mead. And can I tell you, that was the worst hangover I've ever had in my life. We were very drunk and we stayed up until six in the morning. I had made my own mead because I'd found this recipe that billed itself as like the most ancient alcoholic recipe ever. So of course I had to make it. This was a mead, which is like a honey-based sort of beer wine. You make it using a giant jar of just massive amounts of honey and then you let that ferment. That mead, you could drink one pint-sized glass of it and be sort of pleasantly tipsy, but not very. And then you'd have another glass of it and then you would be blackout drunk and there would be no transition between those two things. So that is what Jen and I were doing. And that is our experience with mead. It was great. If somebody has homemade mead like Jenny Williamson, make sure that you just have like the one glass because she's not going to tell you about the second glass. I don't want to spoil the surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so along with this vast cauldron that was filled with mead. Filled with blackout mead. That's what it was. There were nine bronze plates and goblets and nine larger than life drinking horns. Some so large they must have been made from aurochs horn. An aurochs is an enormous extinct wild cow that used to live in Europe. Its horns could be up to eight inches in diameter. This man had definitely been somewhat important because he was extremely shiny. My favorite kind of person. Shiny. His grave goods included ornate gold brooches. Yes, I need that now. Belts. Yeah, I could do with one of those. Neck rings. Uh-huh, please. Gold sheeted daggers with pronged hilts, kind of like a trident. Yes, I always want to be like Poseidon with my dagger. And shoes decorated with gold plates. I mean, how is this even a question that I would want their shoes? Ancient writers might have thought of this man as a Gaul. The tribal name he identified with is lost to history. Modern archaeologists call him a member of the Hallstatt culture, which dated from around 800 to 500 BC. And while Livy, in his account of the first sack of Rome, gives an impression of unsophisticated Gauls in a culture clash with the Romans, I remember reading that passage and thinking, well, this is just a culture clash. Like, it seems like these people who never been in a city before were just wandering around Rome going, whoa, look at the buildings. That was not what was going on. This grave presents clear evidence that actually, long before the first sack of Rome, the Gauls knew the Romans well, maintained peaceful trade contact with the Mediterranean world, and got rich doing it. In fact, nearly everything in this grave was a clue pointing toward close cultural exchange with the Greek and Roman world. That huge cauldron originated in Greece. The place setting for nine reflected the Greek obsession with the number nine, nine muses, nine members of a quorum, and nine guests at an ideal dinner party. The burial also contained other Greek and Roman artifacts, including a very ornate reclining couch to feast on, lying down, Roman style. One interesting thing about the Hochdorf chieftain was that he had few trappings of war. He was a drinker and a partier, not a fighter. He's probably a real softy. Yeah, maybe. We don't know. He'd give you the shirt off his back, but not his gold-plated shoes because those were special. 
I don't know. He might give them to me. He might. He might have been just really sweet. He might take to you. I'd like to think he would and totally invite us to the party. All he had for weaponry were some arrows and a gold-plated dagger that had not seen combat. There's a hint here that the Hawkdorf chieftain's culture was more concerned with wealth than battle. But somewhere around 450 BC, the archaeological record began to get more violent. Gallic people started burying their dead with weapons. Large, heavy, iron broadswords, chainmail, shields as large as four feet long, and war chariots. As time went on, the weapons became bigger and heavier. It was a kind of weaponry arms race, which I don't approve of. Jen does not approve of weaponry arms races. If you're thinking of holding one, just be aware that Jen disapproves. I've got my disapproving caracalla face on. (laughs) Glaring with her disapproving caracalla face right now. By the time of Caesar's invasion in 58 BC, the wealthy, luxury-loving Hallstatt culture had evolved into something else, the Latin culture. And to tell you about them, we're going to tell you about another burial. We're going to hit you with some more archaeology. The archaeological site that defines the Latin culture was uncovered on the northern shore of a lake in Switzerland. It was in use from around 200 to 60 BC, around two years before Caesar's invasion. It consisted of a number of structures built on stilts in the lake, including two bridges over 100 meters long, and the lake bottom around these structures was littered with the artifacts of war, swords, axes, spears, and armor, and parts of chariots. It was also littered with human and horse bones. Many of the humans had died violent deaths. Horse skulls showed signs of being impaled on pikes, possibly for display on the platforms. Some archaeologists have interpreted this site as a place for ritual display of the spoils of war, including the bodies of the vanquished. The archaeological record of the Laten culture shows that military tensions among Gallic tribes were rising to a fever pitch by the time of Caesar's invasion. By then, Gallic culture seems to have developed into a hierarchical tribal society with slaves at the bottom, craftspeople in the middle, and warriors at the top, serving under a king or elected chieftain. These warlike chieftains and their retinues increased their status by raiding each other for cattle, gold, and other valuables. Contrary to the Roman stereotype of simple, unsophisticated tribal people, the Gauls often had complex political systems. Their leaders were often elected, although not always, because the Gauls were not a monolith. In many Gallic tribes, the power of leaders was checked by councils of elders or other community leaders. And for the ancient Romans, kings were the devil and being under the control of one person was just awful. So they could really relate to this separation of power. I just think it's interesting that they both shared that. But the ancient Gauls weren't just raiders and warriors. They were also farmers and herders and many other things. Bards, storytellers. Artists. Craftspeople, metal workers, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, etc. Lovers. Like <laughs> Fabio cover models. <laughs> 300 photoshopped abs. Totally authentic abs, as far as the eye could see. Moustaches. 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 For some reason, that's how we're saying it. <laughs> Don't question it. We know the right way to say it. We're choosing this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're choosing to be ridiculous. I mean, that is the nature of the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, by the time of Caesar's invasion, many people in Gaul lived in Apida. This was a Latin word for fortified settlements surrounded by walls and ditches. So the Apida were almost always built along trade routes, usually on steep hills overlooking vast territories. Some Apida were small towns, but others were fairly dense urban centers with populations as large as 80,000 people. These were also important centers for the production of pottery, metalwork, and other crafts and goods. Inside the opera would be houses, workshops, public buildings, markets, and chieftains' houses. There might also be open spaces for grazing livestock. 
Artifacts found in some Gallic opidas suggest trade connections that reached as far as North Africa and Asia Minor. Even before Caesar's invasion, Roman merchants were familiar with the networks of the Gallic opida, sometimes stopping there to sell wares and buy supplies or even settling there. Yeah, I think that's another thing to point out that's really important about like how Livy and other writers perceived the Gauls versus how they really were. Like they weren't all like just country dwelling people who came from tiny communities. Some of them lived in big cities. Not everyone lived in Apata, however. People in Gaul also lived in small towns and isolated compounds out in the countryside, some fortified and some not. Houses varied depending on the region, tribal tradition, and local materials to hand, but often these were rectangular or round buildings made of timber or wattle and daub. Wattle and daub is a mixture of mud, clay, cattle dung, and straw pasted over a wicker frame, and it's actually really flexible and great for blocking hard winds in a cold climate and also keeping the heat in. They'd also often have thatched roofs. There wouldn't have been windows. There would have been a hole at the top of the thatched roof for smoke to be let out. Wealthier houses might have been built of stone and richly decorated, but even the less well-off took pride in their houses, washing the walls in lime to lighten their appearance. And I think that that difference in how their houses looked would have been really substantial to the Romans. A lot of their houses were based on being more open because of the Mediterranean climate. The Romans had a big opening in the middle of the house to collect rainwater and like let the air circulate. Because drought was something they really had to worry about based on where they lived. The landscape of Gaul before the Gallic Wars probably consisted of rolling fields of pasture land and farmland and great forests full of ancient oaks. The Gauls farmed the land, herded cattle, and intensely managed the forests and their territories. The Romans even learned advanced forest management skills from them. How the Gauls lived off the land probably varied depending on where they were, but ancient sources suggest that they were primarily cattle and horse herders who ate a lot of meat. Hearty meals of meat, bread, and gravy figure prominently in scenes of Gallic feasts, as reported by ancient Mediterranean writers. This is kind of a stereotype, though. The Gauls also drank. Wealthy Gauls imported Roman wine on an industrial scale and drank it unwatered, which the Romans thought was uncivilized, but they're clearly wrong because water in this time was probably less sanitary than the wine. And they were like so fond of this wine. I don't know if it was expensive or cheap. It was expensive. The richer Gauls would import it on an industrial scale from the Mediterranean. I've just been doing research on Spartacus because, spoiler, we're going to talk about Spartacus this season. And I was reading about the Gallic Wars and why there were so many Gallic slaves in Italy at the time of the war. And one of the reasons is because they were selling Gallic slaves for the cost of like an amphora of wine. Gallic tribes people were selling their own people into slavery. Is that what you're saying? Well, there was also a lot of fighting going on at the time. Thracians and Gauls were on different sides of different conflicts, so they were constantly coming up against the Roman Empire, and also different tribes were taking different sides. But it is one of the things that was happening because of this culture clash and because of how the Roman Empire was pushing into different areas. Wow. So less wealthy people drank something called korma, which was made from wheat and honey. I've seen this described as a beer, mead, and even a sort of proto-whiskey, but we don't know exactly what it was. Gauls also had some interesting fashion. Here's a quote from Diodorus. Quote, they wear striped coats fashioned by a buckle on the shoulder, heavy for winter wear and light for summer, in which are set checks close together and of varied hues. And that just sounds like plaid to me. Kind of does. Yeah, like very ancient plaid. And again, this is a quote from Diodorus. The nobles shave their cheeks, but they let their moustache grow until it covers the mouth. Consequentially, when they're eating, their moustaches become entangled in the food. And when they are drinking, the beverage passes, as it were, through a kind of strainer. And that is just 
so gross. And it also reminds me, did you know that I feel like this has definitely happened during World War One. They had like a little mustache net you could put on your mustache to like keep it from getting into things. They definitely had this during the Victorian ages in World War One. It was like a little net you put over your mustache. I will find a picture of it. I think that Gauls would have benefited from this net. <laughs> this is another quote from Diodorus, who's clearly objectifying the Gauls in this quote. He is. He's got needs. Papa needs his biscuit. <laughs> Quote, the Gauls are tall of body with rippling muscles and white of skin and their hair is blonde and not only naturally so, but they also make it their practice by artificial means for they are always washing their hair in lime water and they pull it back from the forehead to the top of the head and back to the nape of the neck. The treatment of their hair makes it so heavy and coarse that it differs in no respect from the manes of horses. Ammianus Marcellinus, who was writing around 400 AD, had this to say, quote, They are all exceedingly careful of cleanliness and neatness, nor in all the country, and most especially in Aquitania, could any man or woman, however poor, be seen either dirty or ragged. Even people who didn't have a lot of money took a lot of pride in their appearance. The typical outfit for Gallic women involved a long dress beneath a large cloak fastened at the shoulder with a brooch. Men wore a similar cloak and brooch combo and under it a knee-length tunic and breeches. Their cloaks were richly decorated with geometric spiraled and circular designs that could look almost floral but that were iconically Celtic. The Gauls were extremely conscientious about hygiene. Pliny the Elder tells us that the Gauls invented animal fat soap and even introduced it to the Romans. They were known to shave all the hair on their bodies which probably helped prevent lice except for the hair on their heads and the drooping handlebar moustaches that we are pronouncing like that, that Gallic men were known for. Gallic graves contain a wide range of tools, including combs, mirrors, nail clippers, and even little spoons for digging out earwax, which is just my favorite detail, that show that they cared a lot about appearance and cleanliness. And Gallic women also wore cosmetics, and Gallic cosmetics were considered very high-end in ancient Rome. In fact, as far back as 189 BC, Gallic makeup was so expensive and opulent that some sure laws tried to limit its use during the Punic Wars. The Gauls were known for their massive, elaborate gold and silver jewelry. Brooches, torques, bracelets, earrings, necklaces, rings, curses, and more. And I have to stop because like, whew, swooning. We both need to go and hang out in ancient Gaul is what I'm hearing. Like the parties, the bling, the Fabios, the moustaches. <laughs> <laughs> The Gauls were master metal workers. They worked in bronze, silver, copper, tin, iron, and gold, and had advanced skills such as gilding or coating surfaces in very thin layers of different metals. And if you're wondering what that is today, I can tell you that's when you have something that is gold vermil or gold plated. Earrings that give your ear an ear infection. Mm, possibly, possibly not. It depends on the coating. I mean, it depends on the person. Like, I get really bad pierced ear infections when I use, like, certain kinds of gold or silver-plated things. Probably nickel that's gold and silver-plated because nickel gives a lot of infections. Oh, yeah, that's probably it. So if you have, like, a ear-piercing allergy problem, blame the galls. If your finger's turning green, it's the galls' fault. It's not the galls' fault. We're kidding. I don't even know if they invented it. I just know that they did it. I'm sure everyone did it as soon as they figured out how to do it. And actually, it made the ability to have beautiful things more universal and not just kept to the people who could afford it. Even people who weren't absolute top of the top had nice gold torques and some gold jewelry and a lot of people had bling. Exactly. And also like maybe you could have a rose gold torque. Maybe we could have a rose gold torque. Maybe that's on Etsy right now. If you're on our Patreon, that's the next thing we're raising money for. <laughs> Do give to our Patreon <laughs> so we can go on Etsy and find rose gold torques. <laughs> 
Anyway, they also worked in glass, precious stones, and materials that came from very far away, like amber, coral, and ivory. Ancient Gallic and Celtic art merged styles and motifs from many different regions to create a sophisticated fusion. When we think of Celtic art today, we think of a very distinctive style that includes complicated knotwork, stylized animals and plants, and beautiful flowing patterns. Mary Roberts, in her book, The Celts, Search for a Civilization points out, although it's generally British and Irish Christian art from the 7th and 8th centuries AD that was first referred to as Celtic art, in the 18th century, actually, those Christian scribes were definitely influenced by more ancient work. And you see it looking at the Latin artwork from a much earlier period. Yeah, this thing she's saying that completely blew my mind is that the artwork we think of as Celtic today was actually drawn by Christian scribes in around the 7th and 8th century AD and described as Celtic by people in the 18th century. So this word Celtic has this vast history that changed and grew, but it's not necessarily artwork from the ancient period of Celtic history, like the Latin culture, although they're not unalike. And I'll put some pictures in the show notes. Yeah. One distinctive piece of metalwork that's immediately recognizable as Celtic is the torque. These were elaborate neck rings with a gap in the front so you could slide the ring around your neck, and some torques fit on the bicep. Ancient writers mentioned these as symbols of status worn by chieftains, and sometimes warriors would go into battle wearing nothing but their torques. One of the most famous, the Snedigem torque, was made in Caesar's lifetime sometime between 175 BC. It's more than a kilogram of mostly solid gold they were not gilding, made of complex, narrow threads of metal wound around each other into ropes, creating an elaborately woven spiral look. The ends of the torque are made of molded metal caps decorated with complex, cross-hatched geometric designs. This torque was found in Britain. In fact, it might be associated with the Iceni, which was Boudicca's tribe. But the Gauls made torques that were very similar. And one thing I will say in defense of gilding is actual gold is quite malleable and soft. So depending on the quality of the gold you're working with, you might actually have to gild it to get it to last a long time. Or to like get it to hold a certain shape. Well, a certain amount of pressure and heat, a solid gold cauldron is probably going to have problems. Yeah. Another item that demonstrates these people's advanced metallurgy is the Gundestrup cauldron. It's made of 13 silver plates that had been disassembled and tossed into a peat bog in Denmark, possibly as a ritual sacrifice. It dates from approximately 150 BC, and the panels are richly decorated with images of male and female warriors, stags, boars, griffins, horses, dogs, trees, gods, and goddesses. Some of the animals, like elephants and hyenas, are African or maybe Asian, demonstrating a significant amount of cultural exchange. The panels all seem to tell a story. A man leading two stags by the horns, one in each hand, a woman with a sword, a figure brandishing a broken chariot wheel. We don't know what these scenes represent. Most likely they come from an ancient, now lost mythological tradition. But one of these scenes reminds me of a myth that's still told today. On one of the panels, a line of warriors marches toward a huge cauldron. Standing by the cauldron is the figure of a man more than twice the size of the marching warriors. He lifts one of the men and holds him upside down by his feet, poised to dunk him in the cauldron. And this reminds me of the cauldron of rebirth in Welsh mythology. In this myth, a magical cauldron has the power to bring the dead back to life. During a war between Ireland and Britain, the Irish gather battlefield corpses and put them in the cauldron to create an undead army. The cauldron is finally destroyed when a warrior from the British side pretends to be a corpse, gets tossed in the cauldron, and then destroys it from the inside with a powerful donkey kick. That's amazing. It's a pretty cool myth. Many historians believe that this story was first written down around 1058 
80 at the earliest. But the fact that the imagery from that story crops up on an ancient cauldron from 150 BC suggests a much earlier origin, and a much broader one, since this is a Welsh myth, but the cauldron was found in Denmark. This suggests that this story, or one it's based on, was once told among Celtic cultures throughout Europe, maybe even by the Gauls. I think there's an interesting thing here about cauldrons as sort of a magical item as well, which is something that reappears in a lot of Celtic myths. So that brings us sort of obliquely into religion. What was ancient Gallic religion like? It's a bit difficult to tell, but we do have some traces of clues. There's a hint that the Gauls found holiness in the world around them, seeing divinity in the lakes, streams, mountains, forests, and other features of the natural world. They may also have worshipped animals. The boar in particular might have been sacred to the Gauls. There's also kind of a hint that they saw standing water, like lakes and bogs and things like that, as sort of a liminal space that connected the realm of the dead and the realm of the living, and that's why you find so many iron age sacrifices of broken swords and shields and cauldrons, things like that in bogs and lakes because they were leaving them as sacrifices for their gods. Wow, I never knew that. That's fascinating. You see that come up in some myths with Celtic roots. Like, for example, the Arthurian cycle with the Lady of the Lake brandishing her sword out of the lake. Ancient writers tell us of massive oak groves in Gaul that served as places of worship, with altars piled high with gold and silver offerings to the gods. No one would dare touch these riches for fear of divine reprisal. In fact, I couldn't track this detail down. This is just one of the things that's in my head that I think sound true, so it must be true. I feel like I might have picked this up, Jen, when we were exchange students in London together. I read somewhere that when Christians began to settle these areas much later, they built cathedrals with tall, broad columns to mimic the sacred oak groves of centuries past. Have you heard that? I haven't heard it, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. The Gauls had a pantheon of gods, most of which we know about through ancient inscriptions, artwork, and Greek and Roman writings, which again, we have to take with a giant salt lick. Not everyone worshipped the same gods in Gaul. Like many polytheistic religions, there were gods for different things. And also, some gods are more important than others in different regions of Gaul. Some highlights include Cernunos, the horn god often depicted with an impressive rack of antlers and shown seated among a bevy of torque-wearing forest creatures. He's on the Gundestrup cauldron, and we'll put a picture in the show notes. There's also the Matrone, a grouping of three women often depicted with snakes, children, baskets of fruit and elements of sacrifice such as burning incense and pigs and these were worshipped by Germanic people as well as the Gauls and may have been the precursor of threefold female deities like the Norns. Tyrannus, a thunder deity associated with the wheel, he's also on the Gundestrop cauldron as the man with the broken chariot wheel. And Caesar tells us he's the equivalent of Mercury. And I suspect that has to do with the fact that Mercury was the god of travelers. And maybe if he's got a wheel, it's somehow related. Ancient Greek and Roman writers tend to equate Gallic gods they encountered with their own gods. So what you get is a lot of, quote, these people worship Mercury and confusing Gallic gods with their own because of some surface similarities. There's also Ogmios, who is a god of eloquence, and he's often depicted with chains piercing his tongue and connecting to the ears of a group of followers. The imagery suggests that these people are powerfully bound by his persuasive skill. And interestingly, everyone in this group is often really in a good mood. Ogmios is smiling with his pierced tongue, and the followers are often depicted as smiling as well. It seems like the fact that the followers are willingly, happily following Ogmios as opposed to being coerced is a key part of his mythography. That's really interesting, 
to me because it kind of gives this feeling that to them, the binding power of storytelling, like the shared story is enough to bring everyone together. But the chains worry me, Jenny. The chains are really dark. For me, that sort of tips you off to the dark side of following a certain story. When you read this description to me, I kept thinking of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And I know they're not related, but it had that same feeling of there's a power that words can cast over you. And sometimes that's great. That power is used for good and to spread ideas and to make the world richer. But the chains make me wonder, like, did they have some terrible dictators or people who cast spells on them and left them bound? Is that a fear they had? And that goes back to some Gallic tribal structures not having kings or having checks on the ruler's power. So those were some Gallic deities that we don't know enough about, mainly attested through inscriptions, a handful of cursed tablets, ancient Greek and Roman writings, and imagery. But there were two things about Gallic religion specifically that I was able to get into more detail on, the Druids and the cult of the severed head. Diodorus has this to say about the customs of the Gauls, quote, when their enemies fall, they cut off their heads and fasten them about the necks of their horses and turning over to their attendants the arms of their opponents all covered with blood I'm assuming this is the weapons and not the actual severed arms because that would also make sense in this paragraph they carry them off as booty singing a paean over them and striking up a song of victory and these first fruits of battle they fasten by nails upon their houses the heads of their most distinguished enemies they embalm in cedar oil and carefully preserve in a chest and these they exhibit to strangers this is what Pliny has to say about the druids The Druids, for that is what they call their priests, hold nothing more sacred than mistletoe and the tree on which it grows. Provided that tree is an oak, they choose forests of oaks and perform no sacred rites without oak leaves. Mistletoe is rare, and when found, it is gathered in a solemn ritual on the sixth day of the moon. A priest in a white robe climbs the oak with a golden sickle and cuts the mistletoe, which is caught in a white cloak. And when I was doing the research for Saturnalia, the interesting thing about mistletoe is the ancient Druids believed that it was like a cure-all for whatever was ailing you. That's why I'm guessing they took so much care with how they harvested it. Yeah, that's really interesting. The Druids were the religious leaders, judges, and philosophers of Gallic communities. Their rank was equal to or higher than that of kings or war chieftains. Exempt from military service, they were highly respected and extremely learned. Their scholarship included, quote, the stars and their movements, the size of the cosmos and the earth, the world of nature, and the power and might of the immortal gods. They carried whole histories, mythographies, scientific knowledge, and legal codes around in their heads. Even the Romans respected their learning. I mean, I respect their learning. I can barely remember, like, my phone number. It takes, like, 20 years to train to be a druid because of all the memorization. I just think into today's world, our memories don't work that way anymore. That's absolutely true. I mean, we have the internet. We don't have to memorize things. These guys basically carried their own internet around in their head. The Druids also have a fairly bloody history of human sacrifice, at least according to the Roman writers. Again, get your salt look out. Right. And the thing about the Roman writers was that, especially when you're talking about Caesar, they had a motive to paint them as uncivilized so that that would justify their invasions. So we do have to take this with a little bit of a grain of salt. It's from Caesar that we get the iconic detail of the Wicker Man, a giant hollow statue woven of wicker branches and stuffed full of living people and sometimes animals, and then set on 
on fire. Caesar tells us the Gauls preferred to use criminals for these sacrifices, but would use innocent people if they didn't have enough criminals to hand. This is Caesar we're getting this from. But Strabo actually corroborates this, saying, quote, The Gauls would strike a man who had been consecrated for sacrifice in the back with a sword and make prophecies based on his death spasms, and they would not sacrifice without the presence of the Druids. Other kinds of human sacrifices have been reported as well. Some men they would shoot dead with arrows and impale in the temples, or they would construct a huge figure of straw and wood, and having thrown cattle and all manner of wild animals and humans into it, they would make a burnt offering of the whole thing. The archaeological record does sort of corroborate human sacrifice, and um, I think throughout the Celtic world, like this is a thing that does crop up. There are a lot of irregular burials in ancient Gallic territories, sometimes large deposits of bones of both humans and animals, which kind of harken back to the Wicker Man descriptions, but sometimes it's also hard to tell whether a burial is a human sacrifice or an execution or a person believed to be a vampire or what was going on here. These are all reasons for deviant burials in the ancient world, and without knowing more about Gallic religious beliefs, sometimes it's really hard to interpret these sites. However, one thing we see in their art over and over, and this is one thing that differentiates ancient Laten artwork from later examples of Celtic art from more Christian periods in history, is all the decapitated heads. Oh, we finally got there, Jenny. We finally get to talk about the heads. Heads figure prominently in Iron Age Gallic art on friezes, coins, vases, stelae, pillars, and other places. Images of severed or disembodied heads reappear. Barry Cunliffe in The Ancient Celts discusses the possibility of a cult of the severed head in which decapitated heads have a certain mythic power and were even objects of worship. And you can see a trace of that magic at work in the Celtic stories that have come down to us today. We don't have myths directly from Gaul. At least Jenny didn't find any in the research. My French is not unfortunately good enough to look at French sources. But we do have myths from areas like Britain, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, places at the edges of an ancient Celtic culture that once stretched across Europe and where these older beliefs and stories held on in the face of invasion and encroaching cultural change. These ancient mythologies were transcribed by Christian monks, usually around the turn of the first millennia, but based on older oral traditions. If you know what to look for, you can find very ancient themes and imagery in these stories that appear in the ancient Celtic archaeological record as a whole, both in the UK and Ireland and beyond in other areas of ancient Celtic culture such as Gaul. The severed head motif is one of those. In stories like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which was a British story first written down in the 1300s, or The Destruction of Dadurga's Hostel, which is part of the Irish Ulster Cycle dating around the 1100s, and the Welsh stories of the Cauldron of Rebirth dating from around the 1000s AD, severed heads continue to live and speak after decapitation as sources of mystical wisdom and objects of talismanic magic. There's also strong archaeological evidence that real Gallic warriors took heads in battle and displayed enemy dead in other ways as well. The Laten archaeological site, with its platforms of dead bodies and horse skulls on pikes, is a prime example of a cult site where war dead and trophies were displayed. And there's this other archaeological site that we just have to tell you about. Are you going to hit us with some archaeology? I'm going to hit you with some sweet, sweet archaeology, guys. Oh, man, this is the best. It's the best day ever. In the 1960s, archaeologists in France discovered an incredible site in... Take it away, Jenny. I don't speak French. Climat sur Ancre. See, I couldn't have said that. In northern France, what they found was an enclosure about 40 meters wide, surrounded by a ditch and marked out with posts at each corner. Inside its boundaries were swords, scabbards, daggers, spears, shields, weapons of every type, and thousands of bones of humans and animals. It dated from around 260 BC. 
The human bones probably belong to between 500 and 1,000 individuals, all men between the ages of 15 and 40. They died violent deaths. Many of the bones had blade marks on them, on knees, thighs, ribs, and vertebrae. One pelvis, as Mary Roberts notes in her book The Celts, Search for Civilization, had, quote, at least four stab wounds on the inner surface, which must have been caused by a penetrating injury from a spear or sharp sword passing through the belly before hitting the bone at the back. But the most noteworthy thing about the bones is that there are no skulls, not one. There's clear evidence of blade marks on the cervical vertebrae that the decapitation seems to have been done as the bodies were lying down, either face up or face down. This is in accord with the ancient writers' claims that the Gauls took heads as trophies after battle. But the ancient sources don't mention anything on the scale of the site that we've seen. A thousand headless corpses appear to have been displayed standing in full battle regalia, upright, close together in rows like a battle formation. They were left exposed like this. Some accounts I've seen said that they were left in the open for close to 200 years. I can't even imagine what that would look like. When the bodies had rotted to bones, the bones had turned white and the weapons had oxidized, the enclosure was destroyed and the bodies buried in a pit or ditch. Some archaeologists believe that this was a ritual memorial site to commemorate a battle or a place to make offerings to the god of war. There's actually an illustration that we found of what this may have looked like and it's really spooky. We'll put it in the show notes. There's also strong evidence that the Gauls left corpses is exposed after death as part of their burial practices. This seemed to be particularly associated with warriors killed in battle. Gallic coins have been discovered that show corpses being devoured by wolves and vultures. Silius Atticus in the 2nd century AD said, quote, To these men, death in battle is glorious, and they consider it a crime to bury the body of such a warrior, for they believe that the soul goes up to the gods in heaven if the body is exposed on the field to be devoured by the birds of prey. Yeah, and that so ties back into that Morrigan mythology. Absolutely, yeah. The Morrigan was a Celtic war goddess who was associated with crows. And crows, of course, would have been very present on a battlefield after the battle was over because they would have eaten the corpses. Yeah, they were, they're carrion, so yeah. Carrion birds. The ancient Roman and Greek writers tell us that the Gauls were valiant in battle, but undisciplined. The Gallic custom of war was designed to highlight individual bravery. The Gauls fought in loose formations, allowing each warrior room to show off his moves, immense long swords were particularly associated with the Gauls. These were sharp along the edges rather than at the point and were used to hack and slash in big, showy, back-breaking downward blows. Musical instruments were often used to communicate and coordinate across the battlefield, as well as to intimidate the enemy. One of the most dramatic examples of this was the Carnix. Polybius was particularly impressed by the sounds of the Gallic army. Quote, There were countless trumpeters and horn blowers, and since the whole army was shouting its war cries at the same time, there was such a confused sound that the noise seemed to come not only from the trumpeters and the soldiers, but also from the countryside, which was joining in the echo. The carnyx was an immense bronze trumpet cast in an elongated S-shape, positioned so that the bell of the instrument rested on the ground, and it would have to because these were often six feet tall or more. So think of it as like an immense S-shaped didgeridoo. The bell would often be cast in animal shapes. Carnices have been found with the bell styled like open-mouthed birds, boars, serpents, and other animals. Carnices 
in the archaeological record are unbelievably rare and precious. Up until 2004, we only had fragments of five of these musical instruments coming from places as far apart as Scotland, Switzerland, Romania, France, and Germany. But in 2004, an additional seven carnices were unearthed in Gallic territory, one of which was almost totally complete. This is incredibly valuable. The instruments were found in a pit with over 500 fragments of swords and scabbards, cauldrons, spearheads, shields, votive animal sculptures, and other objects. The site is believed to be a ritual sacrifice, means soon after Caesar's Gallic Wars. The carnices had been deliberately damaged so they could never be played again. And that just makes me so sad. There have been modern reconstructions of carnices that have been played in concerts, and while we're not sure how close these are to the original sounds, one of the challenges is that since no instruments have been found totally complete and undamaged, researchers don't know how the mouthpiece actually attached to the rest of the instrument. They're the closest we have at the moment, and I'll put a link to a carnix in the show notes so you can hear what it sounds like. Another important and very iconic part of Gallic warfare was the chariot. Diodorus tells us, quote, When they go into battle, the Gauls use chariots drawn by two horses, which carry the charioteer and the warrior. They first hurl their javelins at the enemy and then step down from their chariots and join battle with their swords. Certain of them despise death to such a degree that they enter the perils of battle without protective armor and with no more than a girdle about their loins. They bring along to war also their free men to serve them, choosing them out from among the poor, and these attendants they use in battle as charioteers and as shield bearers. It is also their custom when they are formed for battle to step out in front of the line and to challenge the most valiant men from among their opponents to single combat, brandishing their weapons in front of them to terrify their adversaries. And when any man accepts the challenge to battle, they then break forth into a song in praise of the valiant deeds of their ancestors and in boast of their own high achievements, reviling all the while and belittling their opponent and trying by such talk to strip him of his bold spirit before the combat. So there was a lot of musical trash talk going on in Gallic battles. Which is amazing. And that also really tracks with the scene in the Iliad where Hector and I think it's Ajax, one of the Ajaxes are about to fight. And they like literally have to tell their whole family history before they can get down to fighting. Pretty much the whole day is taken up with regaling about how great they are as opponents. Yeah, that's fascinating. I don't know where this comes from or why, but I think this is a really ancient tradition. It is that single combat and like if they fought and won, then they would not just kill loads and loads of other Greek or Trojan people. It would just be like, we'd fight this and then it's done. It's like these two people are fighting on behalf of the army and whoever wins, wins. Yeah, or wins for that day because there was different periods of time where like Hector was decimating the Greek army and Achilles was decimating the Trojan army and every once in a while when that was happening, they'd be like, let's have a day where just one in one fight. I don't know if that specific tradition is tracked to the Gauls, like whether they would honor that, like if you're in single combat, you defeat somebody, the whole army won't fight you. But it would be interesting to think that maybe it's similar. And it's like a way of saving lives. Absolutely. And if you think about it, how far their culture stretched, like it would have encompassed not far from where Troy is, I imagine. Troy was Turkey. Asia Minor. Yeah, and I believe that there were Celtic peoples in that area. And also, like we've been talking about the whole time, these were porous barriers between these cultures. Like, there was a lot of cultural exchange going on. The Gauls, like the Celts and other parts of the world, used war chariots in battle. But there are some mysteries concerning how and when. First, war chariots appear in the archaeological record, especially in high-status burials in Gaul, and were such a big, flashy part of Celtic warfare in general. In fact, the word in Latin for chariot 
Chorus, is actually based on a Gallic loanword. But war chariots don't appear in Caesar's account of the Gallic Wars, at least not the parts where Caesar was in Gaul. The Gallic army Caesar faced used the cavalry a lot, but not chariots. The sense I got from modern historians is that by the time Caesar got to Gaul, war chariots had become obsolete, although they were still used in other parts of the Celtic world, including in Britain, for much longer. But an account from Frontinus, a general who lived from 40 to 103 AD and served as a general of Britain, suggests that Caesar was holding out on us. In his stratagems, he said, quote, Caesar met the scythe-bearing chariots of the Gauls with stakes driven into the ground and kept them in check. Maybe Caesar just didn't mention those chariots because he didn't want to make the Gauls look too cool next to his own troops. And also, where are the war elephants, Caesar? Right, Caesar also definitely used war elephants and didn't bring those up. And I think that the reason is because he wanted to keep the focus of the commentaries on his troops and glorify them. That helped him build troop loyalty for himself. But I don't know, Jen. I've just got to call bull shit on this. First, Frontinus was born almost 100 years after the Gallic Wars. He wasn't an eyewitness. And second, scythe-bearing chariots with long knives attached to the wheels that sliced through enemy armies and caused mayhem, those were used in different parts of the ancient world, especially by the Persians. But no scythe chariots that I have heard of have ever been dug out of the ground in Gallic territory. So I don't know, man. It's a little bit of a mystery, but I kind of doubt it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair enough. And now we're going to leave the war chariots and talk about women in Gallic society. So this is a quote from Diodorus, our main uh, chronicler at the moment. Hold up. Diodorus has something to say about women. Hold up, everyone. Hold your drink. Quote, The women of the Gauls are not only like their men in their great stature, but they are a match for them in courage as well. Well, thank you, Diodorus. I'll take that. Look at that. Diodorus is being nice to women. I'm going to hit you with some archaeology now. The woman was somewhere between 30 and 40 years old when she died in around 480 BC. She was found near the modern day town of Vix. Not Vaporub, just Vix. It was probably pronounced Vix. I'm just going to say Vix. I could be wrong about that. Still going to say it that way. Like we say moustache. <laughs> she was found near the modern-day town of Vix in eastern France. According to Europe Before Rome, a site-by-site tour of the Stone, Bronze, and Iron Ages by Douglas T. Price, she had some serious health problems. Quote, substantial problems with her hip joints and an asymmetric head shape suggest that she would have had a waddling gait and her head would have been held tilted to the right and her face somewhat twisted. These traits may be a consequence of either congenital conditions or childhood stress due to disease or malnutrition or both. But Regardless of her health problems, this woman had a very high place in society. She was found lying on a ceremonial cart beneath a burial mound. A bronze-headed staff had been laid across her chest, and she'd been buried wearing an intricate gold torque, a pure gold diadem holding back her hair, beads of Baltic amber, diorite, and serpentine, and a wealth of other jewels, both locally made and imported from Greece and Scythia. Perhaps the most remarkable part of this grave was the enormous crater found inside. A crater is a large cauldron for mixing, storing, and serving wine, an iconically Greek cauldron. This one is the largest crater ever discovered. It could hold over a thousand liters. That's more than 1,500 bottles of wine, and I mean, I want to be invited to that Prosecco party. 1,500 bottles of Prosecco. We have to, like, measure all of the cauldrons we come across by how much Prosecco could go in there. And this is more than twice the size of the Hochdorf Chieftain's Cauldron. He could probably hold about 700 bottles of Prosecco. Give or take. I don't know if that's enough bottles. (laughs) I know. I mean, I guess it depends on if if you have an ideal party size of nine or not. And if you're drinking from Aurochs horns. 
Despite its immense size, this crater was made to be portable, built from detachable panels, each labeled with Greek letters for easy reassembly. I mean, this was the ancient world Ikea cauldron, wasn't it? It had like little directions and everything. In Greek. Amazing. There were other vessels in the grave as well, all very high-end and imported from ancient Rome, Greece, and Etruscan villages. And this woman's grave is just so Hallstatt. Not a lot of war goods, but riches from the far corners of the ancient Mediterranean world, demonstrating a very cosmopolitan trade network. Archaeologists aren't sure exactly what role she played in society. She's sometimes referred to as the princess or priestess of Vix. But some historians believe that her unusual appearance and grave goods suggest that she played a religious role in her community as a high-ranking seeress or ritual healer. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that this was the grave of a female druid. Whoa. Yeah, bold claim, I know, but... I mean, technically, as far as we know, there were no roles in Gallic society that were legally closed to women. Women could be poets, bards, healers, warriors, and anything else that men could be. That included druids. Female druids were called bandrui. Cassius Dio mentions a female druid named Ghana, who was welcomed by the son of the Emperor Vespasian on a diplomatic visit to Rome. She's one of the only two druids ever mentioned by name in the ancient sources. While the warriors and political leaders were still mostly men, women warriors and political leaders do crop up in the historical record of the ancient Celts. Boudicca is a prime example of that, and so is Cartamandua. These two are both British rulers, but they share Celtic culture and ancestry with the Gauls. You don't see a lot of women warriors in the archaeological record of ancient Gaul, but it's a bit difficult to make that judgment, because before modern bioarchaeology, graves with weapons in them were often categorized as male without looking at the skeleton. So there actually may be a lot more female warrior graves in Gaul than we realize. And given the number of accounts of women warriors and generals in both Celtic mythology and the historical sources, it's likely that warlike women were not unusual in Gaul. Gallic women were said to be particularly respected as negotiators and diplomats as well. Plutarch tells us a story of Gallic women negotiating a truce between two sides in a civil war, quote, with such irreproachable fairness that a wondrous friendship was brought about between both states and families. They may have regularly acted as respected mediators in tribal disputes. It's a bit difficult to talk about the rights women had within marriage and the family in ancient Gaul specifically, because a lot of the information we have is from Celtic cultures in the UK and Ireland from a later time, or we get it from Caesar's commentaries, and we've talked a whole lot about how problematic that is. However, we're going to draw from these sources anyway to give ourselves at least a glimpse of a clearer picture. According to Caesar, who had reason to present the Gauls as barbaric in order to cover his own highly inflated ego and ass. Husbands had the power of life and death over their wives as well as their children. Caesar tells us that if a man of high rank died under mysterious circumstances, his wife would be questioned and even tortured to determine if she had any part in it. Wives who were deemed guilty would be burned to death. And I mean, to be honest with my true crime hat on, that's where you gotta look first is the wife, especially if there's life insurance. Or the husband if it's a woman who died. Usually the spouse did it. Right, Jen? Usually, not always, but it's a good place to start. Yeah, I think the Gauls took a cue from Keith Morrison here. Oh, Keith. If one day I find out that he listens to this podcast, I'll just cry. Tears of joy or tears of embarrassment or like what? Both. <laughs> all. Uh, like all of the above. <laughs> all of the above. Although Caesar tells us that upon the funeral of a high-ranking man, quote, they cast into fire all things, including living creatures, which they suppose to have been dear to them when alive. And a little before this period, slaves and dependents who were ascertained to have been beloved by them were, after the regular funeral rites 
were completed, burnt together with them. So I'm guessing what he says is that when a high-ranking man dies, all of the things that he loves, his wife, his children, his pets, his golden shiny stuff gets thrown into the fire with him. I kind of question that, though, because we're not really seeing that in the archaeological record that I know of. I mean, first off, we're seeing a lot of non-cremation burials, and I don't believe that they also included people that were killed along with the chieftain or whoever it was. You do have to take this with a grain of salt. On the other hand, the tradition of killing wives, pets, servants, slaves, and members of the court and others when the head of a household dies as a kind of sacrifice is definitely something that happened in the ancient world across a lot of different cultures. I mean, we saw that in the Scythians episode where people's pets were killed and put in the graves with them. People's horses. Yeah, but horses weren't a pet. There's a lot of evidence in Scythian cultures that they really loved and revered their horses and treated them well. So I, I don't think that you could say that they were just livestock to them either. Oh, no, that's what I mean. I think that they had a really special bond with their horses as much as we would consider beloved pets in the family. But they were also more like they were their companion in war. They were such a big part of their world. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely true. So Caesar has more to say here. Oh, no, 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 Caesar, no. I know, but he is going to say something in a minute that I think actually is attested in other sources as well, which is that men and women brought an equal dowry to marriages. This put wives on a more equal financial footing with their husbands. The joint dowry would be set aside during the marriage to accumulate profit, and if the husband died before the wife, she would inherit it. Women were not equal in all things. This was not a feminist utopia here. For example, some Celtic societies had a sort of wear guild or man price system where, for instance, if you murdered someone, you had to pay their family a fine based on who you murdered and their rank in society. I don't know if the Gauls had this system, but when systems like this were in place in Celtic societies, often the fine for murdering a woman was half that of killing a man or something around there. However, Gallic women also had a better deal in marriage than Greek and Roman women. They had some freedom to choose their husbands and they could initiate a divorce. When they split from their husbands, women got to keep their portion of the dowry. The right to divorce isn't always unconditional. In some Celtic societies, women whose husbands were cheating on them weren't allowed to ask for a divorce as long as the husbands weren't denying them sex. I mean, here we go. I roll for the episode. I mean. But there's a caveat here. Women could divorce their husbands if they cheated three times, if they were impotent, or if they had bad breath. There's also a hint that women were allowed an unusual amount of sexual freedom in Gaul and other Celtic societies, as opposed to in the Mediterranean world. While monogamy was the typical arrangement, men, especially high-ranking men, sometimes had more than one wife, and wives sometimes had more than one husband. You can also see examples of polyamorous relationships in Celtic myth. According to Cassius Dio, the wife of a Caledonian chieftain once told Julia Augusta, wife of Septimus Severus, quote, we fulfill the demands of nature in a much better way than do you Roman women, for we consort openly with the best men, whereas you let yourselves be debauched in secret by the vilest. That's a mic drop. I know. As for children, among high-ranking families, there was a tradition of foster parentage that you see across the Celtic world, including in Gaul. The idea of fosterage was that you send your child to be raised in the household of a neighboring community, and they'd send their kids to you. This both guaranteed good behavior among allies and let children of leading families build valuable political connections early on. And also, this is one of those things that I just have to say every time I read this, it's kind of hostage-taking. Yeah, it kind of is. You see fosterage being represented in some of the myths that we're going to talk about later. And you also see it in the history during the Gallic Wars. You see a lot of tribal communities treating hostages in order to band together and fight together against the Romans. And that's to guarantee no double crossing. Yeah. 
The problem with oral tradition is that when you die, your stories die with you, leaving only your conquerors to tell future generations who you were. Or your podcast. Or us, which, you know, take that with a grain of salt. It's not the <laughs> optimal situation. <laughs> this is like me and Jen <laughs> talking out of our asses. Um, this is not the Ken Burns version. <laughs> we know just enough about stuff to get in trouble is kind of how I see this. <laughs> So far, we've told you about Gallic archaeology, imagery, culture, and accounts from ancient writers. What's missing is an account of the Gauls in their own words. What we need are the songs, stories, and poems that the bards and druids carried around in their heads. But this was an oral tradition. The Gauls didn't write things down. Their stories and songs died with them. Or did they? Did they? Posidonius was a Greek who lived between 135 and 51 BC and who traveled extensively in Gaul, chronicling his travels. He had plenty of time to get to know this culture, and he did it before the Gallic Wars. This was pre-Roman Gaul. He tells us a lot about the ancient Gauls, and we've scattered his quotes elsewhere in this episode too. And if you were making a drinking game out of this, you're probably drunk. If you're making a drinking game out of every time we quote Posidonius of Rhodes or Diodorus. So here's one of Posidonius. Macedonius's quotes, quote, The Celts sometimes have single combats at their entertainments. If the bystanders do not stop them, they will proceed to kill one another. A hind quarter of pork was put on the table and the bravest man took it. And if anyone else laid claim to it, then those two rose up to fight till one of them was slain. This quote about the meat is sometimes taken with a grain of salt among modern historians. It's sometimes seen as an exaggeration. But... Well, I think there's a strong possibility that real Gallic dinner parties sometimes went down like this, and here's why. The clue is in the Ulster cycle. This isn't a story from ancient Gaul. It's actually from Ireland. In this story, a king hosts a feast. He invites two bands of warriors, those from Ulster and from Connaught. These two are traditionally enemies, and they're there to resolve a dispute about a dog. And the dog doesn't really factor into this part of the story, so just forget this whole thing I said about a dog. Forget it. There's no dog. Woof! <laughs> All right, there's a dog. Never mind. So at this feast, an enormous roasted pig is served. And one of the warriors from Connaught strolls up to carve the pig, telling the Ulstermen to find themselves, quote, one to match me in feats if they wanted to challenge his right to the hero's portion, which was the best cut. And I'm just assuming that that was the bacon. Oh, I don't know. It could have been a chop. It could have been some crackling. Oh, cracklings. Yeah. Some applesauce. So maybe it's bacon crackling sandwich with applesauce. Yes. You see what I'm saying? This is the part of the pig that they reserved for the strongest warrior because yum because everything belongs to the brave correct jen thank you he was essentially declaring himself top of the heap and in a belligerent martial warrior society when groups of warriors got together i see this is totally possible that everyone felt extreme pressure to prove themselves and these men lived and died by their warlike reputations a hierarchy had to be established fast before people started killing each other over status disputes the ballsy cannot warrior had just declared himself the top of the hierarchy which meant that everyone there had to challenge him or accept that they were lesser heroes. This would be a major hit to their rank within their society. Initially, other men issued their challenges in the form of elaborate boasting, as they tried to sort themselves out in the hierarchy without bloodshed. So each man boasted of his deeds, and one by one, the ballsy cannot men shot them down by colorfully retelling tales of how he defeated each of them in battle. Eventually, through boasting and storytelling, the two groups came to the consensus that the ballsy guy was indeed the bravest of them all and deserved the hero's portion. Bloodshed averted, delicious bacon, crackling, and applesauce sandwich served. But wait! <laughs> oh no! Are you telling me there's a twist? I'm telling you there's a wrench in the works. Just then, someone from the Ulster side showed up late. Don't 
ever show up late to a Gallic dinner party. Suddenly, the hierarchy was thrown into confusion. More boasting ensued, the initial order was upended, and the new guy from Ulster usurped the top place. He divvied up the pig, serving his own guys all the delicious cracklings and all the applesauce and all the bacon, and the guys from Connaught got nothing but the pig's hooves to eat, which I hear can also be delicious, but maybe they were just not into pig's hooves. And that was just asking for a fight. An epic battle broke out, and people died over meat. Over bacon. I mean, bacon. Let's be honest. Bacon. (laughs) I love bacon. I know. I do too. Bacon swoon. (laughs) Clearly, neither of us are vegetarian. What's interesting here is that in this story from Ireland around the first millennium AD, things go down exactly the way Posidonius tells us, except Posidonius never went to Ireland. The people he was writing about were Gauls. This is just one of many intriguing hints of a shared culture and mythology that appear in the Celtic myths from the UK and Ireland. The Ulster Cycle is a group of maybe 80 stories centered around a mythological king named Conchavor, who ruled the ancient kingdom of Ulster in Northern Ireland and the half-divine warrior Cúchulainn. No one can say how old the stories are. Some claim that by the 600s AD, they were already so old they'd almost been forgotten. Luckily, though, Christian scribes in Ireland preserved some of these stories by writing them down. We have some scraps and fragments that date all the way back to that time, but the earliest complete written version of a story from the Ulster Cycle is the Cattle Raid of Cooley, which was first written down in the 11th century by Christian scribes, and remember, Salt Lick. Do not lick the Christian scribes. I don't think they'd like it. Even though it was Christians who wrote these stories down, it is clear that these are pre-Christian stories that had existed for a long time in oral tradition before they were written down. The setting of the tales is believed to be around the 1st century AD, just a little later than Caesar's time. And we cannot stress enough how Irish these stories are. They're iconic to Ireland and a huge part of Irish identity. The place names are Irish, Ulster and Connaught were real places, and some of the characters are real people from Irish history. But there are clues, if you know where to look, that the Ulster cycle also has a lot to tell us about the ancient Gauls. Barry Cunliffe, in his book, The Ancient Celts, takes this a step further. He has this to say about the Ulster Cycle, quote, As the story unfolds, we are introduced to many scenes and actions reflecting behavior familiar through the ethnographic works of Posidonius and Caesar about the Gauls. Feasting in the hero's portion, chariot warfare, single combat, severed heads, joint dowries of husbands and wives, fosterage, and above all, the ethics and motivations of a warrior aristocracy for whom raiding was commonplace. He goes on to say, quote, There is a slightly unnerving disparity between the archaeological record in Ireland and aspects of warfare which must be regarded as central to the action of the epic. Two items in particular stand out, the sword and the chariot. In the Ulster Cycle, the heroes use massive slashing swords and are driven to battle on light war chariots. The archaeological record of Ireland has produced no large slashing sword of this type and no chariot fittings of the types which commonly recur in Britain and the continent. It remains, therefore, a strong possibility that the core of the epics, deeply embedded within the Ulster Cycle lies in a continental European tradition which was transmitted at some stage to Ireland. So in other words, even though its characters and landscape are Irish, there's a possibility that the ancient story is based on an even more ancient framework that comes from Celtic Gaul and can provide tantalizing clues about a world we lost when Julius Caesar invaded. And like we've said before, the Ulster Cycle is set in Ireland and it's synonymous with Irish history. Stories with histories as long as this one naturally grow and change in meaning over the 
centuries and mean different things to different people at different times. Those meanings are all valid. If you have strong feelings about the Ulster cycle being Irish, we agree with you. They're definitely Irish. But when you compare the archaeology and the iconography of ancient Gaul, not to mention eyewitness accounts from ancient writers, with these myths, you find some interesting parallels. It's entirely possible that stories like the Ulster cycle can pull back the curtain on the lost world of the Gauls. And in the next episode, before we get to what happened in the Gallic Wars, we're going to do it. We're going to pull back that curtain. Think of the next episode as a sort of cauldron of rebirth or a cache of priceless carnices with totally intact mouthpieces ready to make the hills echo. We're going to go out on a limb and operate under the assumption that a tall tale from Celtic Ireland can help us make the Gauls live and breathe again. Next episode, we're going to tell you the oldest full story from the Ulster cycle that we can get our hands on. Maybe the closest thing we can get to a real Gallic myth. We're going to tell you all about Cucullin and the cattle raid of Cooley. That's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, you can connect with us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And check out our Patreon. We're on patreon.com forward slash Ancient History Fangirl. It's a great way to support the podcast and it's desperately needed because it will help us get episodes out more regularly and get more research materials. And, you know, it helps us prioritize the, the podcast more in our lives because we both have full time day jobs. And if you do want to support the podcast, but you don't want to commit to a monthly thing, we also have a Ko-Fi account. It's on our homepage, the link that says buy us a coffee, and it's a place where you can kick us a few bucks to show your support. And every little bit helps. Thanks so much. See you in two weeks. Thank you so much. <laughs>